I wonder if I were to ask you, what would you do for $10 million? Get your mind going for just a second. What would you do for $10 million? There are certainly folks who compete on reality game shows for lots of money doing some really crazy and disgusting things for the hope of a little bit of money. What would you do for $10 million? Now that's hard to even fathom. I know that some of you have that in the bank and that's no big deal to you. But for the rest of us, that's really hard to imagine. What would you do for $10 million? Now think about it. It would set you up and your kids up and your grandkids up for life. I mean, you, you would never have to work again. And somebody of you said, amen, wouldn't have to go there tomorrow. If I were to offer you $10 million, it would change your entire life. What would you do for $10 million? There was a survey taken, and the responses from people here in America are pretty interesting. What would you do for $10 million? Here's what some of the answers indicated. 6% of the people who responded said they would change their race for $10 million. They would become a different race. Probably more interesting, 7%, now this is disturbing, honestly, 7% said they would murder a stranger for $10 million. Now that means that, that if we got 100 folks here this morning, seven of you are looking around. Who's going to pay me? <clears throat> and which one of you am I taking out? That's 7% said they'd murder a complete stranger for $10 million. 10% of the people said they wouldn't testify and instead would let a murderer go free. Pay me, I'm okay, I'll keep my mouth shut. 16% would give up their United States citizenship for $10 million. They'd just go, go enjoy life in the Bahamas, I guess. I mean, you know, maybe so. 25% of the people who answered the question said that for $10 million, they would abandon all their friends. Not somebody in your family. That's one out of four. You know, look around. 25% of us in here would say, see, I'm taking the money. I didn't like you much anyway. That's what they'd say. 25% would abandon all their friends. Now, you may not admit to things like that. You may say, well, I'd never do that. But maybe you wouldn't do something as drastic. But I guarantee you that in some way, all of us are, are affected by the greed that's just there in our hearts. Maybe you're being suffocated and destroyed by greed that maybe, as of yet, you don't even realize is there. You don't even recognize it for what it is. You feel lots of pressure and worry and stress in your life, and maybe it's about greed. You may say, now, I'd never abandon all my friends, but money sure is important to me. None of us will admit greed, let's be honest. We see it in others, but rarely do we see it in ourselves. We can certainly call it out, but we're very reluctant to see it and to admit it. Greed is based upon a mentality that there's never enough to go around. There's always going to be a shortage, or we're going to run out, or that whatever comes my way is just for my consumption and purely for my enjoyment. Or that the ultimate dream is to have more than the generation before me had, and I've got to do whatever I can to make sure that I get to that dream. Greed disguises itself well. And I hope to pull back the, the layers on that just a little bit. It disguises itself, tricking us into thinking that maybe we're just good savers. We're frugal spenders. We're wise givers. Or that we're just excellent future planners. Now, nothing is wrong with saving. Nothing is wrong with spending wisely or being smart toward what you give or for planning for the future. Now, obviously, none of that's wrong. But many of us hide behind those things. 
Many of us would say, well, I'm just a saver, saving up for a rainy day. When in reality, we're scared to death. We're greedy. We're going to hang on to everything that we can. Unfortunately, as you well know, greed has a devastating effect both on the individual and on anybody around them. What it does primarily is to lead us away from God. Jesus himself said you can't serve both God and money. You're going to make a choice. And so we often do that. Greed will lead you away from God. It it gives you also a false sense of security. It leads you into believing that I've got everything covered. Everything's good as long as I have enough, as long as I've saved, and I've got a little bit of reserve, or I've got a good job, or I've, I've planned for retirement, then I'm okay. A false sense of security. It keeps us also from giving to the very things that God has commanded and encouraged us to give generously toward. It makes us very selfish people. And ultimately what we'll see today is that greed is a, is a sign, unfortunately, of great foolishness. Not recognizing our own limits. Now you may not, as I said, be willing to disown all of your friends for money, but I wonder if for many of us here, if the love of money and stuff, the desire to feel secure by what that money and stuff brings you, is slowly but surely sapping the life out of you, causing great anxiety and great worry, and affecting your entire family. I want you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. And as we've done the last couple of weeks, if you've not been with us, we'll start in Deuteronomy, kind of set up the story, and then we'll move into another passage of Scripture to get the the full effect of what's going on. Now, let me catch you up to speed real quick. We're in a series called Family Matters. The idea is that family certainly does matter, and that there are matters that every family deals with. There are roles and responsibilities and things that happen in the family that God has something to say about. You don't have to go on your own as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, as a child, as a brother, sister. You don't have to go on your own because God has spoken very clearly on those things. What we're looking at first is the role of the man in the family. Now, I realize not everybody here has a man in their family, but maybe you're a person, a lady who's got some man in your life, whether it's a son or a grandson or a friend or neighbor or somebody that you can say, you know what, I'm going to pray these things for that guy. Some of you do have a man in your life. Maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your son or whomever. And you say, this is the kind of man I want him to be. And of course, many of us here are men. And we look at these scriptures and say, this is the kind of man that God has called me to be. What we've seen so far is that great men are men of faithfulness, men of courage, and men of repentance. And that's really about it. You don't have to be great in the eyes of the world to be great in the eyes of God. Be a man who's faithful, be a man of courage, and be a man of repentance when you mess up. And that's God's definition of greatness. We saw that in the life of King David. Now what we're looking at now is how those great men who may have been living lives of faithfulness, lives of courage, and lives of repentance, how they can fall. And of course, when men fall, it can be a devastating effect on lots of people around them at home and outside the home. And so we've seen so far how great men fall because of of pride, great men fall because of lust, and great men fall, we'll see today, because of greed. What we're seeing in Deuteronomy chapter 17 is a list of prohibitions that the king, this great man of Israel, should not fall into. The Israelites are wandering in the desert, about to enter the promised land, and through Moses, the great leader of Israel, God gives some instructions for the future king. Now one day, the people would want a king when they enter the promised land and they settle down. They want somebody, a human ruler over them, and God says, okay, I'll permit that, but here's who this guy has to be. He is to be and to remain a great man. God doesn't want him to fall, and so he's going to give some instructions. In Deuteronomy... 
chapter 17, what we see are those instructions. So if you look there, you see Deuteronomy 17, look in verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, that's that promised land, take possession of it, live in it, and say, we want to appoint a king over us like all the nations around us. So that's, you're going to do that. Here's what you do. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. So that guy is supposed to be chosen by the Lord. Appoint a king from your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, and this is the the, the guideline here for the king, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses, for the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. So that's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago with pride. The king isn't supposed to gain for himself all this military strength, and therefore trust in that, and feel like he's strong. He's to, he's to trust the Lord. Last week, here's what we saw. He must not acquire many wives for himself, so that his heart won't go astray. So the idea was that his lust for power and lust for pleasure must be surrendered to the Lord and to trust God and not let his heart be drawn astray by his lust. And here's what we'll focus on this week. Verse 17, the the second half of that. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. Next week we'll see this. Look at verse 18. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction, and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen, and he will not turn from this command to the right or the left, and he and his sons will continue ruling many years over Israel. So this is the idea. This great man is to remain great by avoiding certain things. We've seen avoiding pride. We've seen avoiding lust. Today we'll see avoiding greed. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver or gold for himself. Why not? Because of what God knew about the heart of sinful people. And that includes all of us, not just the people back in the Old Testament. The idea is that this king was not supposed to get all this stuff for himself. Because he would learn to trust that. He would begin to think that, look at me, look what I have, I've got it all together. He would be tempted also to oppress the people by raising taxes so that he could increase the royal treasury. He would develop a sense of independence from God and and this insatiable desire for more and more and more and more. His stuff and his wealth would rival God for first place in his heart. He would exploit his people for personal gain. It would be a really, really bad thing for this guy to do that. God knew that the king's wealth, and if he turned his focus to those things, he would be focused on stuff that wouldn't last. And God had more in mind for the king than this. God knew that no man can truly be great if his focus is on this life only. If all he's worried about is how he can win the race to perceived success and security. God knew, and you'll see this on the back of your bulletin, a very difficult truth that was true then, and it's still true today, that your relationship with stuff reveals a lot, says a lot about who you really are. Now, that's not anything you don't know. Maybe it's something you hadn't heard in a while, and maybe you don't even like me saying it, because maybe that hits pretty close to home. But God knew for the king, his relationship to stuff would reveal really who he was. And for us, it's the same truth, that difficult truth that applies today. The king was to be this great man who first and foremost led his people in submission and obedience to the Lord. 
And what we'll see, unfortunately, is that in King Solomon, the son of King David, this great man that we've seen, his son, King Solomon, gives in to all of this. He focuses on what he can accumulate, how he can impress others, what he can gain for himself on this earth. King Solomon is a shining example of how a great man can fall. Last week we saw lust, the week before we saw pride, today we look at greed. I want you to see the results of his greed. We looked at the results of his lust last week, so flip, flip over to the right from Deuteronomy to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. We'll be in chapter 10, and I want to read to you the results of what Solomon's quest for stuff got him. 1 Kings chapter 10, look at verse 14. The weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was 25 tons. It's incredible. Besides what came from merchants, traders' merchandise, and all the Arabian kings and governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 15 pounds of gold went into each shield. He made 300 small shields of hammered gold. About 4 pounds of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a very large ivory throne and overlaid it with fine gold. The throne had six steps. There was a rounded top at the back of the throne, armrests on either side of the seat, and two lions standing beside the armrests. Twelve lions were standing there on, on the six steps, one at each end. Nothing like it had ever been made in any other kingdom. Get your mind around this. This guy was the richest man in the world. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were gold. And all the utensils of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Just like what's in your cabinets, right? Just pure gold, especially if you have small children. There's something in them. I'm not sure if it's gold. There was no silver. Now, I get this. Since it was considered as nothing in Solomon's time, it's gold or nothing for him. For the king had ships of Tarshish at sea with Hiram's fleet. And once every three years, the ships of Tarshish would arrive bearing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Well, that's kind of funny. Anyway, King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the world in riches and in wisdom. The whole world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Every man would bring his annual tribute, items of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices, and horses and mules. This guy had everything. He had so put his focus on accumulating that he got it all. The problem was God had specifically forbidden that the king do this. That's what we don't need to miss. God had said to the king, don't get lots of stuff for yourself. It's just going to mess you up. It's just going to take your focus off of what's really important. What does the king do? <laughs> he gets lots of stuff for himself. I believe that somewhere behind all of this were some lies that were true then because they're they're eternally true of humanity. Some lies that greed was hiding behind that this king bought into that we probably today, at least one of these is applicable to each person here. These lies that greed hides behind. The first one is, I am what I have. I am what I have. Now, certainly back during the time of King Solomon, kings were judged based upon how much they had in the royal treasury. If you had a lot, you were a great king. I doubt very seriously that if King Solomon did not have all of this stuff, that the whole world would have wanted an audience with him. 
this great man of wisdom probably would not have been nearly as attractive to the rest of the world had he not also had all of this stuff. And so he began to believe that maybe he was what he had. Now, our world is no different. As much as we hate to admit it, and I really hate to tell you this this morning, but it's still true, I'm afraid, today, that in the minds of the majority of people in our country in particular, and in the world, in the minds of most people, success and greatness are still defined by what you have, where you live, what you drive, and how much you make. Now, I I don't believe the Scripture tells us that's true, but I'm simply stating that's what's true in the minds of most people in our world. And probably true in the minds of most people here today. It's so easy to buy into the lie that I am what I have. That if I have a lot, then I am great and I feel good about myself. And if I don't have much, then I must not be worth anything. I must not be of great value and I don't feel real great about myself. I would imagine that in times where you have had your needs met and everything is going well for you and you feel like you're doing really well at work and earning a great living, that you probably have felt, all right, I got it together. And then in times when life is a struggle, you probably have hit the rock bottom and say, well, I'm just useless. Unfortunately, that lie is very powerful. It shapes your view of your worth. It can also make you very protective. Now, I don't know how many of you struggle with this, but I'll just admit that in my home, when my kids get close to breaking something, I freak out. I just lose it. If, if Duke walks up with dirty hands and starts wiping them on the television, which happens, I just immediately remember how much that television cost. And I just uh, start freaking out. If one of the kids is carrying something around that's valuable or important, watch out because I'm coming after you. Don't drop it. Put it back where you got it. It can make you very protect. When you believe that your stuff is an extension of you, that it's so valuable, it can become more valuable than people and relationships. Don't touch it. Leave it alone. I earned it. I bought it. Don't touch it. Don't break it. I'm not going to share it with you. There's a young man on the baseball team that I have the privilege of coaching, and it was funny because he's purchased some things with his own money, some equipment that he uses. And I don't know if you know what a donut is in baseball, but it's a little weight that looks about like this, and it slips over the end of the bat. Well, this young man in particular, he's bought all kinds of gear for himself, and he's a great, great kid. He, he was really reluctant to let anybody else use the donut on his bat. And finally, I just went to him one day, and, and, and I had talked to his dad after it was all over. And his dad said, yeah, we're trying to work on sharing. I told him, I said, nobody's going to steal that donut, buddy. It's going to be okay, I promise. But isn't it interesting how from very early we get attached to our things so much. Boy, that just carries over into adulthood, doesn't it? We're just grown-up kids. We're still attached to those things. It can make you very protective. And I'll tell you this, when you believe the lie that I am what I have, you know what else it does to you? It pushes you to the very edges and beyond of your financial limits. I saw a study several years ago that revealed that Americans spend $1.20 for every dollar they make. Now, unfortunately, that's probably true. You know what that means? You know how we get there? Right there. And, and, and then I will reveal to you the only one that I'm carrying. There's my $1. I'll hang on to that. 
and use the plastic instead, I suppose. But you know, we get there by going into debt, high interest, or maybe we take out a loan, or we refinance something, or whatever it may be, we extend a line of credit. That's how we get there. When we define ourselves, I am what I have, we push ourselves beyond our financial limits, and that's the reason for such huge debt and financial pressure. That's the reason, quite honestly, that so many people in our world, and many of us included here today, and I'm not here to condemn you, but, but the reason that so many of us, in many cases, live check to check, because we have pushed ourselves, in some cases, to the absolute limits and beyond. I am what I have, a very subtle but powerful lie. I wonder if you're believing that today. And I want to confront that lie with the truth of what Jesus says about you, that you are not what you have. In fact, what you have is useless compared to Him. And what He did for you in your pitiful, sinful, awful, nasty, bound-for-hell state, that's all of us, by the way, is He came to earth, lived a perfect life so that you wouldn't have to, and you couldn't anyway. He died a death in your place, and His life and His death and His resurrection is what He imposes on you and says, that's your value. Now, you've got a choice to make. You can either believe you are what you have, or you can believe you are what Jesus says you are. Now, one of those is going to be true of you walking out of here today. One of those is going to be true of me walking out of here. I'm either going to believe I am what I have, or that I am loved by God because Jesus so demonstrated that love, Romans 5, chapter 8, Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8, rather, that He gave His life for me even while I was rotten and messed up. Define yourself according to one of those two. The second lie is that God can't or won't take care of me. God can't or won't meet my needs. Now, the king in Deuteronomy chapter 17 was prohibited from gaining lots of stuff for himself. So why would King Solomon, knowing this, he was to make a copy of the law. He certainly had written this down, had certainly read it. Why would he give in to all of this? Well, somewhere along the line, he probably gave in to the lie that God either can't or he won't take care of me. That if, if I'm going to be the king and I'm going to have protection of this country, I've got to have lots of stuff. I'm not sure that God's law, that what he said so long ago, is still applicable or still true today. Solomon's relationship with stuff was supposed to be secondary to his dependent relationship on the Lord, but he got it backward. He began to see his stuff as what he could count on. His stuff as what would meet his needs. Forgetting that God hadn't changed... His promises, his resources had never changed. But the king's trust in all of that certainly did. And he came to the point where he assumed he was the one who had to look after all of the stuff. He was the one who had to protect the nation and look out for its interests. I mean, what about rainy days, he might have said. What about economic downturns? What if things go wrong? What if we run out of the 25 tons of gold that are coming every year? God, I've got to make sure I've got enough. And we can throw stones at this king all day long until we turn around and look in the mirror and realize we're not any different. Maybe you are. I'm not. Not any different than this. Many of us here today are operating with our finances as if God can't or won't take care of us. At least not in the way that we want Him to. And so there's this endless list of what ifs. What if my stuff breaks? What if it gets lost? What if there's not enough? What if the economy goes bad? Maybe you think you're just being wise, but really, maybe you need to stop and say, am I just scared of not trusting God? 
maybe you're, you're working yourself to death trying to get ahead, and maybe you say, you know, people look at me and say I've got a great work ethic, but really I'm just driven by the need to feel secure in and of myself, and I'm not trusting the Lord. Maybe you say, well, I'm just saving up. I just want to have a good nest egg. Some would say you're a very wise planner, and maybe there's some wisdom in it. But maybe in reality you'd stop today and you'd say, I'm just scared to death about the future. I can't trust God with it. I'm trying to control the future. I don't want anything bad to happen, so I'm going to be prepared. And maybe you're just bound up by worry. You're wringing your hands all the time. You watch the news and you watch the markets, and it's just killing you. What's going to happen? Can we make it? Am I going to lose everything? Now, I'm not saying that you should be stupid. (laughs) That's not the point. But priority says, God's priority says, trust Him before you trust yourself. That God can indeed meet your needs. Maybe all along you're thinking, well, if I could just get a little bit more, I won't be so worried. And you know what happens? The exact opposite. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you have to lose. It never ends. You're never going to be out of worry if you're thinking God can't or won't meet my needs because there's always going to be a gap between what you perceive God providing for you and what you really want. God has provided for me a a Ford 500 to drive. Bought it from Parker Ford. Wonderful people there. Got some folks who work here. Or work there. They go here. You know what I'd rather have? A brand new Chevy Corvette. Now, no offense to the folks at Parker Ford. I love my Ford. But man, I was driving home last night to do a wedding in Louisville. I was driving home and I pulled there in Beaver Dam. You know that little service station there? About 77 miles down the Western Kentucky Parkway. And up next to me pulls a brand new one. I thought about just offering him to trade right there. <laughs> but look, if you need some service, Jimmy Morris is your guy to call. He's great. I, I'll send you right there. But isn't it true? I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe your car is a Ford Mustang. Just all souped up, or maybe it's way beyond that. He's, well, you know, I've got my sights set on something different. It's always good. God has provided for me and taken care of me, but you know what? My sights are always on something else. Always on what I don't have. Well, God, you know, I, yeah, that's great. It, 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 you're providing my needs, Lord, but really what I'd like is there's always going to be a gap. It doesn't matter what you have. If, you know, if I were driving a Chevy Corvette and a new one came out, you know what I'd want? The new one. Well, this one's old. There's always going to be that gap. And if you're, if you're buying into the lie that God can't or won't meet your needs, you know what you're going to be all the time is anxious and nervous and worried and fearful, hanging on by a thread, worried that it's all going to fall apart real soon. You'll never be content. You'll never learn to appreciate what God has already given you and the things that you have. It'll never happen. Because you always think, well, God can't, or He's choosing not to meet my needs. He won't do it. The third lie is that human limits don't apply to me. Human limits don't apply to me. Now, I had you look at 1 Kings chapter 10 and all of Solomon's stuff. And, and he was the richest, most powerful man in the world. And not, not, even his throne was far and away better than anything that had ever been created. But I want to read something to you from the very next chapter. In 1 Kings chapter 11... Verse 41, it begins like this. The rest of the events of Solomon's reign, along with all his accomplishments and his wisdom, are written about in the book of Solomon's events. So this, record, this book that recorded all of his stuff. The length of Solomon's reign in Jerusalem over all Israel totaled 40 years. Solomon rested with his fathers. You know what that means? 
That's a fancy way of saying, a nice biblical way of saying he died. Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. His son Rehoboam became king in his place. Solomon had all this stuff, 25 tons of gold coming his way. I don't have to tell you how much of it he took with him because you already know. None. I don't have to tell you that he was not irreplaceable because you just read it. His son took his place and all that gold went to him. Solomon maybe began to believe human limits don't apply to me. But the one constant for everyone who lives is that you will die. What encouraging news this morning from the pulpit. You will die. Now most of us here sort of know that, but you realize we don't believe it. It seems so unreal to us. You realize that none of us here have experienced that. We don't really know what it's like. Now we've seen people go through it. But it's always happened to somebody else. It's hard to truly get your mind around that you will die. But all we have to do, if we could open these windows and peer across the street to the cemetery, I don't even have to show you chapter and verse. I just show you all of that. And you realize that each one of us has tremendous limits. Part of the problem in greed is that we don't stop to recognize that human limits do apply. That there will be a time when time runs out on us. And that all the stuff we have will go to someone else. I've told you before about my old neighbor in Louisville. His name was Mr. Fenwick. Floyd was his first name. And he was a great guy. Still living. Wonderful neighbor. Loved him. He's the kind of guy to loan you anything. Here I was. I, you know, I can't fix anything at all. I mean, you all know that by now. Uh, Mark Hale, in particular, knows that by now. <clears throat> Mark's my first line of defense. If anything goes wrong at the parsonage, I just call Mark. Uh, Mark, something else happened. He expects to call at least once or twice a week. That's going to happen. I'm not going to try to fix it because I'll just break it even more. I'm just going to leave it alone. But, but Mr. Fenwick was great. He's the kind of guy who'd come over and fix stuff for you. I would go in his garage, and I'd ask him if he had, you know, could I borrow this? Well, of course he did. He's like better than, than the hardware store. I mean, you just walk in his garage, he's got it all. And, and, and Mr. Fenwick, would, he would start to giggle when I'd walk into his garage, and he'd look at all this stuff. It was just shelves and shelves full of those little pull-out little, you know, things you hold nails and screws and stuff in. I mean, just tons of those things. He said, I can't wait till my kids have to go through all this stuff. <laughs> he said, I'm going to die and just leave it all right here, you know. But there's a man who, who, who's realistic about his stuff, but it's so hard to be that way. Because when we operate as if we don't have limits, then we're going to have an earthly focus. We're, we're going we're to try to accumulate as much as possible and simply enjoy it for ourselves and sit on what we have and be just like King Solomon, consuming everything that comes our way. Now that's the problem with greed. It's based on lies. It's going to tell you that you are what you have, that God can't or He won't come through for you. It's, it's going to tell you that human limits don't apply to you. What then do you do about it? I'm not going to leave you hanging with, okay, well, that, oh, uh, that's great. I recognize that in myself. What do I do? Let me give you a few simple things that you can do to apply in your life. And if you will, you will be on the path. You will not accomplish this overnight. Don't expect yourself to. But you'll be on the path to some freedom regarding your stuff and your relationship with it. You'll be on the path to seeing God be the Lord over all of your life rather than just portions of it and not all. The first thing that I want to encourage you to do is to own your standard of living. Own it. Now this goes back to I am what I have. 
You need to own your standard of living or it's going to own you. Let me tell you some, some simple truths today. You are the one who decides your standard of living. Well, no. not I, You know, we live in America and it seems like there's got to keep up. No, you are the one who decides your standard of living. Whatever it's going to be. You're the one who decides how much you're going to live on. Whether you want to live on every bit of what you make or not all of what you make. You're the one who decides that. That's simple enough. You know that. You're the one who discerns what you really, really need. Which, in some cases, is everything, right? I just, I need it all. It's all I need. I can't live without this stuff. You're the one who can create the margin in your finances so that you're not feeling pressured and you're not feeling as if you're living check to check. You have the ability to make some of those decisions. You certainly do. You're the one who's feeding yourself the lie that you are what you have. You're the one who's buying into it over and over and over. I'm not telling you that. Maybe Satan whispers that in your ear, but you're the one who chooses whether or not to believe it. You're the only one who can stick a paddle in the water and go a different direction when it comes to all this stuff. You're the one who can make the choice to believe what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, that a man's life, a person's life, is not the sum of his possessions. Jesus said that. I'm not telling you anything that Jesus hadn't already said. How do you do that then? How do you own your standard of living? Well, I, uh, this, is, this seems so, so practical, it, it almost seems ridiculous to say, but let me, let me tell you this stuff. One of the things that I really believe that will help you own your standard of living, and I'm going to go a different direction, and here we go, and we're going to take ownership for this, we're not going to let this run over us, is to determine where is your money going. You might be surprised. We spent how much to eat out? I had no idea I was spending $4 a day at Fidalgo Bay on those little frou-frou jinks. I had no idea. That's why you go with straight coffee, right? No idea I was spending that much on this or that. D- determine where it's going. Some, for some here, I realize you know all this. I mean, you absolutely have it down. You are the most organized person. But for some, this is revelation. You mean I'm supposed to know where I'm spending money? Might be a good idea. Know where your money is going. Just make a list. Add it up. This isn't to get on you. It's just where is it going? And then ask God, both from the Scripture and in prayer, to help you discern what you really need, a tough prayer to pray, and where He wants your money to go. Then die to the idea that your personal worth is equated with your net worth. That's a tough one. You are not what you have. And you will be required to die to that idea in order to live for the Lord. Decide also to live below your means. That means you'll be different. Really different. Because you won't spend $1.20 for every dollar you make. You might only spend 80 cents. Revolutionary this morning. You will be very different if you choose to live below your means. But what you're doing is you're creating margin so that you're not worried to death and so that you are freed up to be obedient with your money the way that God says to be obedient. And then, owning your standard of living also means that you simply budget accordingly. Now, budget, I realize, is a dirty four-letter word for some of you. You know what a budget is? It's just a plan. It's a plan. It's not a slave driver. It just says, here's what we, if you want to spend $800 a month on eating out at Los Portales, then you go right ahead. But just know ahead of time, we're going to spend $800 this month at Los Portales. Breakfast, lunch, supper, every single day. 
but they give you free chips and salsa, so maybe it's worth it. I don't know. <laughs> but if you just decide ahead of time, here's what we're going to spend our money on. We have, we have looked into what God has said. We've submitted ourselves to Him, and now we're going to budget accordingly. So own your standard of living. It's huge because you're not what you are, so own it and change it. Secondly, daily consider God's limits and then yours. And I mean this every single day. I would pray this week that you'd wake up every morning and say, let me consider for just a second today God's limits and mine. Here's a hint. He has none. And I'll give you another hint. You have a lot. He created the world. You didn't. You're a part of that creation. He owns everything. The Bible says in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I own nothing. I just manage a small little portion of it, in essence. You realize you don't even own your home? You stop making payments, you'll figure that out real quick. Don't pay your taxes a few years. You'll figure out who really owns your home. You really own nothing, even in practical terms. God owns it all. He knows everything, including the future. In reality, when you went to sleep last night, you didn't even know if you'd wake up this morning. You see how limited we are? You see how unlimited He is? He is outside human limitation. You will move across the street. You'll go to the cemetery. If you consider all of this, then decide who you're going to trust regarding your stuff. You want to trust the one who is unlimited or the one who's limited? The one who's infinite or the one who's going to die? Decide who you're going to trust to meet your needs. The one who knows the future or the one who didn't even know if you'd get up this morning when you went to bed last night? Who are you going to trust? Decide whose plan you're going to follow regarding your money and your stuff. The one whose plan has never failed or the one that you're just not so sure about so you keep worrying over and over and over. And then finally, I want to give you what really in Scripture is the ultimate remedy, and I'll show you a little parable here in just a second, the ultimate remedy for greed, and that is to give. Now, we're not going to pass the offering plate again. This isn't about how much you gave this morning, how much you're giving to the church. We need more money. That has nothing to do with it. This is about you being free to be the person that God wants you to be. The, the church will survive. Jesus promised that the church will live on. He said, I will build my church, He says. Honestly, the church is not dependent upon our money. So that's not what this is about. What this is about is whether or not we are going to be foolish or wise in how we operate. Let me read you a little story in Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells the, a parable. He says, a rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you know how you get rich toward God? You give. Plain and simple. You give. The fool never asks, why is God giving me so much? Maybe he just thinks, well, it's so I can enjoy it, so I can retire early, so I can give it to my kids, who will squander it all, by the way. 
Maybe, maybe I just, I think, well, God has given me so much so, I, so that I won't have to, to, to be concerned with anything at all. So I'll just take it easy. I'll enjoy myself. But the fool does not realize his limits. That nothing he has is his own. That maybe God has given him all this stuff for a purpose far beyond his own pleasure. This fool is rich, but not rich toward God, because he's like a stagnant pond. Water flows in, but nothing flows out. God's not pleased with that. The fool is like King Solomon, who broke God's command and just accumulated stuff for himself. And then right after this, Jesus says these words, Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, you want to be rich toward God, you want to turn on the faucet of giving in your life, here's what he says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more important, is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? If then you are not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you, not even Solomon, the king with all the money, in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't keep striving for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious, for the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourself that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not about giving no more money to the church. It's about who's in charge of your life. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, you can't serve both God and money. You're going to make a choice between one. The cure for greed is generosity. So I encourage you this week, the, the best step that some of us could take is just to get out the checkbook and write a big old check. Where? I don't even know. To somebody who needs it. Maybe to the church. Maybe to an organization. To somebody that, that you say, you know what, God, I want to let this money be used for something great. I encourage you to become a percentage giver off the top to say, this is who God is in charge of my finances. I'm gonna, he's going to get his first. Become a spontaneous giver. Give as much as you possibly can. Your relationship with your stuff reveals a lot about who you are. Money this morning may be on the throne of your life. Nobody likes to admit that. You may be so worried and so bound up by yourself. Nobody likes to admit it, but maybe it's true. And maybe today, before you leave, you say, I don't want that stuff on the throne of my life anymore. Because I'm limited. I want to live for what will last forever. I want to live the way that Jesus has called me to live. Maybe you're caught up in it, believing these lies. And you just simply make a decision to surrender it all, including your stuff. Fellas, I'd like for you to do something. I've asked the guys each week to do something different. The first week I asked you to come down front. Last week I had you stand. This week I just, I want you to take out your wallet. And some of you have been sitting on it. It's uncomfortable by now because you're like my dad and your wallet is about eight inches thick. Take out your wallet. 
and give all your money to the person next. No, I. Just kidding. The person that was like, okay, hey, I like this sermon. Amen. <clears throat> Preach it again. So, here's what I want you to do, guys. And ladies, obviously, this sermon applies to you as well. You know, I'm not just preaching to the guys. But in just a moment, I'm going to have Emma Dean play quietly. And, and before we sing our, our closing hymn, I want you to spend a little time with God and your wallet. Symbolically, this represents your stuff. What you spend your money on, what you prioritize, what you value, all those things. Symbolically, that's what this represents. And so I, I, I encourage you guys, and I really do, I challenge you to, to ask God, Lord, reveal to me who really is in charge. Is it this, or is it you? And God may reveal to you very quickly, well, you already know that. <laughs> You're holding it. And maybe even symbolically, you'd lay it down. Maybe you want to come here and pray, and you can take it back with you, I promise, when you leave. But maybe you just say, you know what, I am laying this down to place it under your control. I'm not sure all the steps I need to take, but Lord, this morning it's been revealed to me that my heart is in the wrong place, that my stuff is ruling my life, and I want Jesus in control. I want to live for what lasts. And so maybe you'd spend a little time with God and your wallet, and you say, God, this will no longer control me. This will not be how I define myself. I will not believe I am what I have. I will not believe that you can't or won't take care of me. And I won't believe any longer that I'm unlimited. And I will manage this the way you have told me to in Scripture. And Medina, if you would, please come and play. And guys, I, I will give you just a few moments. You spend time with God however it is that you need to. If you want to kneel right there in the... In the pew, if you just want to bow your head, if you want to come down here and get alone with God, that's fine. And then I will lead us in prayer. We'll stand and we'll close with a song. But spend some time with God and your wallet. Submit it to Him. As you continue to do business with God, let me pray for us. And then we'll be, we'll stand for a song. God, symbolically today, as we've taken out what represents our stuff, we place that under your control. Lord, we confess to you that we have defined ourselves by what we have, that we've not trusted you to take care of our needs, and that we have been foolish to believe that we're unlimited. So today, God, we, we ask you to change our hearts. Jesus, we ask you to be enthroned in our lives. 
that we no longer live by the tyranny of our stuff and our desires for it, but we live under your control. Lord, give us contentment, create some margin in our lives. We pray that you'd help us to be wise in how we operate with our stuff. Lord, make us givers just like you, that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son. Make us like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.